0: Okay, if you've got a Bible on you, why don't you grab it don't you bring it out now. If you don't, don't worry. The words will appear behind me uh, on the screen. But if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn to Luke's Gospel this morning. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 14. So that's Luke eighteen nine 9 to 14. That's the parable we're going to be in uh, for the rest of today. So this is God's Word. To some who were confident of their own righteousness... And looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But beat his breast and said, "God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And we thank God for His word, as it still speaks to us today. It has been a pretty turbulent. Week, right? Um, it's a bit captain obvious for me to say that this morning, but it has been a pretty turbulent week in the kind of global scale, right? Uh, as the American presidential race has played out over the last week on our TVs, our news feeds, our newspapers, and all over social media, I don't know about you, but I have found it to be the most compulsive viewing, right? Like, my wife, who's not at all interested in politics, all of a sudden is like, Well, what's happening? And I think she's like, She's asked me about my day. She doesn't actually care. She wants to know what's happening in the US presidential election, right? It's compulsive viewing, right? It's a bit of a damning indictment of how sad you get when you're in your 30s, right? Oh, it's not elections that you stay up all night for, okay? Like when you're, you know, when you're in school, it was your school formal, right? That was the first thing you stayed up all night for. And in uni, it was nights out, right? Or finals, either way, that was at least pretty interesting. Uh, and then, you know, whenever you're like me and, and you're in your late 20s, it was staying up all night for newborn babies. And then when you get into your 30s, it's elections, right? How sad are you, right? That's the question this morning. I mean, that's pretty much a downward spiral. Anyway, but it's been one of those weeks, right, where everyone's screen time is up. I bet if you took your Apple phone out now, scrolled into settings, looked at screen time, it's going to read like some awful number that you're (laughs) deeply ashamed of and you need prayer ministry for afterwards, right? It's because it's compulsive viewing. Like if it wasn't so serious, it would make great entertainment, wouldn't it? Like if it wasn't so serious, it would make great entertainment. And another thing that falls into that bracket for me whenever i think about things that are both serious and great entertainment in some level are court cases, right? Court cases. I find them utterly fascinating, right? For some reason, lots of people find court cases captivating. Through the years, people have clamored to watch them, right? So big things like the trial of O.J. Simpson, that was like a massive global thing. People tuning in to find out, and the glove doesn't fit, right? If you, if you don't know, you don't know, right? That's the big hinge of the court case, right? The, the trial of O.J. Simpson, Simpson, the impeachment trial of Bill Clinton, Trump's impeachment that happened, uh, recent Netflix focus on things like the Central Park Five or the trial of the Chicago 7, right? We find them compulsive viewing. Or if your preference is for trash TV, Judge Judy and Judge Rinder, right? We've got to slip them in there, right? Even even my wife, like Joy, uh, about a year ago went with her friend Laura to a thing called the murder trial, right? They paid something like 80 quid for the privilege of this thing. But anyway, all it was was a conceptual murder trial, right? So it happens in a hotel. There is a murder case. You hear it like it was, you know, they present the evidence. They hear it like they're up in court. And then they sit at your table and your table is a jury, and then you have to come to the conclusion of, like, you know, are they guilty? Are they not guilty? Apparently, there was some, like, social experiment element. Like, so people in Belfast found them guilty, but people in Liverpool didn't. You know, I mean, what does that even say? Anyway, but they all they had, they paid big money for the privilege of going to a murder trial. We find it compulsive, don't we? Like, it's, it's a form of entertainment in a way. But very often, there is serious business at play. And I say that today, perhaps you're confused why I'm saying that. I'm saying that today because probably the easiest way of coming at the text that we've just read is coming at it through the lens of a court case. Probably the easiest way to look at it and to kind of get the core of what's going on is to come at it thinking context of a court case, right? Like many passages, okay, uh, this chapter in Luke in Luke 18 is kind of a series of parables. So right before this parable, you have another one. And the parable that comes before this one is the parable of the persistent widow, where a widow continually asks a judge who didn't care much for what people thought of him or had any relationship with God, He asks him repeatedly for justice, like again and again and again and again and again, until eventually the judge caves in and gives the persistent widow justice. That happens right before, for this parable, and then we roll into the next parable, which is the one we're reading today, which is about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And on the face of it, you see, it sounds like it's a religious occasion, okay? The scripture says they are going to pray. Really what that meant, the word prayer was kind of a blanket term uh, in the biblical narrative for worship, for all of worship. So going up to pray really meant just, I'm going to worship, okay? They're going to the temple to pray, But in reality, it plays out way more like a court case. I say that because in ancient Jewish culture... The, every case in a sense, not just the civil ones, right? Like every case had to be brought before a judge by the accuser, right? There was no Crown Prosecution Service. It wasn't that you got nicked on a Friday night and you end up in court on a Monday morning, right? Like that didn't happen. Anything at all from he stole my goat to he murdered my brother, ended up in court because the accuser had to bring the accusation before a, before a judge and bring the accusee. So they both had to be there, right? He had to get them up in front of a judge and say, this guy did this. And then they had to present Evidence and a judge would eventually rule in one of their favor. In other words, it was all about presenting, persuading, and eventually prevailing. That's what it was about. And really, that's exactly what's going on here presenting, persuading, and prevailing. Those aren't my three headings for the sermon, by the way. (laughs) You see, the parable is about prayer on the face of it, okay? It sounds like it's about prayer. The prayer that, in one sense, the Pharisee makes, and then then the different prayer that the tax collector makes. In one way, you could say that the parable was about prayer, but really, it's not. Really, it's about something much deeper and much more significant than that. You see, the intro gives the clue. Verse 9, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this Parable. This parable is about righteousness. That's a Christian term. It's one that you don't really hear anywhere else out in the world. Uh, you hear it in church and nowhere else. And somehow the Pharisee has made this righteousness into some sort of contest, right? Hence the court case thing. He's made it into like a contest for how good you are or you aren't. And that's not what it's about. Picking underneath the surface. And it's pointing to our relationship with God. So what does this parable have to say about the kingdom and how we are to live? If you're just in today for your first time at church, we've been walking through a series called The Kingdom of Heaven is Like. That series has dug into Jesus' chosen method of talking about what the kingdom was like. And Jesus' chosen method was parables, was stories. Some of them a little bit strange, some of them pretty obvious, some of them massively countercultural, cultural in, in how they kind of came out of question, but all of them stirred people to make a response in their heart. That's what Jesus was doing every time. He didn't give people the option to walk away and go, oh, cool story, right? That wasn't what Jesus did. He forced people to make a decision about what they thought about the kingdom, and he's doing the same today. And I think today's parable says two things that I feel are especially timely in the moment that we're in right now. And I think it's these, right? I think Jesus is talking about humility in a world of self and talking about justification in a world of judgment. The First is that he's talking about humility in a world of self. This is how the parable reads, okay? Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Sometimes... Sometimes I hope you're not, but I know lots of people will have been. You are out with friends, okay? They're a couple, you're a couple. You're out for friends, for dinner, okay? You're in a decent restaurant. And you listen, okay? And all of a sudden, they start to talk about their relationship, right? And, and they start to talk about things. And, uh, and all of a sudden, right, as they begin to talk about some aspect of what's going on in their lives, you, know, you, you do kind of that face as it unfolds before you, that kind of like, ooh thing, right, as they start to talk about what's going on in their lives, right, like, so it starts lighthearted, like, one of them, you know, cracks a joke about the other person, and then it sort of spirals downhill, and then all of a sudden, it's into full-blown argument, and you're, like, sliding off your seat, like, under the table, right, you know, that thing, right, and so it happens around things like, Daryl, you spend every waking minute at the gym, or, like, you're never off your phone, right, you know, it kind of starts with some comment like that, and then when it all boils down, at the end of the day, it's about some form of escapism, right, Like, they've got issues in terms of how they relate to one another. They maybe don't communicate that well. It starts off with a conversation about screen time, but actually where it boils down to is something about them not knowing how to be together. Or it's some things like, you know, that friend at work who talks about their hiding of their little, you know, spending thing. Like, oh, what she doesn't know won't hurt her. You know, those sorts of comments, right? There's always that guy at work, right? Always, right? And on the outside, it's about, you know, small spending on little things that they can probably easily afford. But on the inside, actually, it's about trust. It's about integrity. It's about all I have is yours. And all you have is mine. And the thing is that, that it's stuff that on the face of it might not seem to be that bad. But really it points to something going on that's much deeper. And it's not the outside stuff that is most important. But often it's the stuff that that is pointing directly at And that's exactly what's going on with the Pharisee. You see, Jesus starts the parable with him called the Pharisee, right? That's how it starts. And by the end of the parable, it ends with him just referring to him as the other. Or some translations will say that other man, right? It starts with the Pharisee. It ends with the other. What on earth happened in between? Well, part of this has to do with seeing this parable as original hearers would have seen it, right? You see, it's tempting to read this with the sorts of eyes that we have now, like centuries onwards of reading the Bible and understanding that really at its heart, we don't really like tax collectors or Pharisees, right? So the second you hear something like this, you're like, well, both of these are bad guys. We don't like tax collectors or Pharisees. There can only be one way that this parable ends up, except that's not how they would have heard it. See, original hearers would have pretty much uniformly had the expectation that the Pharisee was going to be the hero of the story. When they heard it and heard a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector, pretty much uniformly they would have thought, well, of course it's going to be a story about the Pharisee you know, coming good. Of course it is. He's going to be the hero of this story. You see, there was a good chance Jesus was speaking, in fact, to a crowd of Pharisees after all, right? Hence the intro that he gives to the parable. They were, they were religious people. They were faithful people. They were good people. One commentator called Bach writes this, the two men represent polar opposites in the first century religious culture. The Pharisee belonged to the most pious movement, that's kind of holy, while the tax collector was part of the most hated profession. In other words, one People thought holy, the other hated. They thought one of them was holy. They thought the other one was hated. And that's how they were coming at this story. The thing is that righteousness is right at the heart of it, okay? Righteousness is at the heart of what this parable is getting at, right? And in the first century world, righteousness was was one of those values or qualities that was of supreme importance, okay? Uh, It was the standard in terms of how people viewed other people's lives. Like if you were a righteous person, you were of good standing. If you were an unrighteous person, you were of low standing, right? Nowadays, it's like how successful somebody is or how open-minded or how educated or talented or what their pedigree is or whatever. Those are the of things now that people come at other people kind of viewing them at a high level or as a low level right then righteousness and it's one of those kind of strange terms where we know what it is right but do we really know what it is whenever we think about it you see then righteousness was marked by kind of acting in loyalty to the giver of the unearned status right that's what christians had Followers, uh, followers of Christ, those of faith of that time. So they did good. They followed rules. They obeyed laws. They had hundreds of them. That's what righteousness looked like. I mean, even Yahweh, right, even their God was known as righteous, not because of something that was in him, but because as as a result of his saving acts through history, right? That's how they thought of him as righteous, not righteousness is in you. You're righteous because of what you've done. That's what they thought. So the prophet Micah writes this, for example, in Micah 6, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of God. Even when they thought of their God, they thought him righteous because of what he'd done. That's what they thought. And so that's how they lived. Righteousness was the sort of thing that you demonstrated by how good you were. It had to be demonstrated because it wasn't something that was in you. And so we get to the Pharisee, right? And he's the righteous one. And the parable tells us that he gets to the place of worship and that he's he's standing apart. Standing apart because he didn't want to be made unclean by the uncleanness of those who were there in case they made him unclean too. And then he prays this, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. Standing apart, because he doesn't want to be close. He doesn't want to be made unclean by their uncleanness. And then he prays like this, Or as one biblical commentator writes, the Pharisee's prayer is so laden with self-congratulation that it can hardly get off the ground, let alone wing its way to the listening ear of God. It's all about him, isn't it? When you read that prayer, it's all about him. The thing is, though, nothing that he did was actually worthy of being shut down. I know that may come as a shock, but in uh, the original culture, nothing that he prayed there was actually worthy of being like, censored. Okay, Why do I say that? I say that because it pretty much fell within the culture of religious types of the time. For example, Deuteronomy twenty six thirteen to 15, it commands the Israelites after they tithe to speak to the Lord and tell him how they have obeyed his commands and how they have not disobeyed other ones. It was how they were meant to talk to God, and that's pretty much exactly what he does. He's just doing what Pharsaic culture was. To give you an idea of this, this was at a time where one of the standard prayers for particularly pious Jewish people was to pray, "Thank you God that I am not a slave, a Gentile or a woman." It was one of the standard prayers of particularly pious Jews. That's what they prayed. And that's exactly what he does, right? He's not doing anything wrong in terms of the culture of that time. Thank you, God, that I'm not like them. This is all the things that I have done. It's like that line, right, that Bono sings in uh, the Band-Aid Christmas single, right? Whenever he sings, but tonight, thank God it's them instead of you. And I don't know about you, but every single time I hear that song, like I'm like singing along, right? Because it comes on at Christmas, feel good factor, turned up to 11. You're like, amazing. And then it gets to that line and I'm like, oh, like just can't sing it, can't say it, don't even know why that appeared in the song, right? Like it's one of those ones. And that's kind of how I feel whenever I read that prayer. It's kind of how I feel. And it makes you uncomfortable, doesn't it? And it's that that Jesus takes issue with. You see, this man is probably praying aloud, right? He's standing apart from the others. He's probably praying aloud, loud enough so that everyone can hear him, right? After all, it is a golden opportunity for a good prayer sermon, Right? Everybody has been subjected to a prayer sermon at some point in their lives, I'm convinced, right? You know the type, don't you, Uh, that kind of pray prayer top trumps, right? Like you pray and then they start to pray and you go, oh my goodness, my prayer was pathetic. Did you hear the language they use? It often sounds like, you know, God, I thank you that I woke this morning at 6 a.m. for my third prayer time of the day. And you revealed yourself in your word to me. I studied Leviticus and Deuteronomy for six hours through the night. Obviously, no big deal to a man like me. And you challenged me to give, so I'm now giving 90% of everything I own away. Again, it's no big deal to me. And God, I was just remembering the 26 people I led to faith yesterday and the dozens that were healed just as I walked to the faith mission to buy more books, right? That's the sort of thing, right, isn't it? Prayer, top trumps. See, we've got this term for that sort of thing today, and it's called virtue signaling. It's a very, like, on-trend sort of term that you often hear in the liberal press. It's called virtue signaling, okay? We hear it often, and it's like, a, it's like an absolutely killer takedown. Like, nobody, there's nobody that can withstand the, yeah, stop virtue signaling thing that's usually kind of ruled out across the internet. And... Normally it's ruled out as takedowns for people who say things to demonstrate how good their character is or how morally correct their approach is, right? It's often attributed to an article that was written in in The Spectator in 2018, right? And this is what James Bartholomew wrote in that article. No one actually, the thing with virtue signaling is no one actually has to do anything. Virtue comes from mere words or even from silently held beliefs. There was a time in the distant past when people thought you could only be virtuous by doing things, by helping the blind, across the road, looking after your elderly parents instead of dumping them in a home, staying in a, a not-so-holy, perfect marriage for the sake of the children. These things involve effort and sacrifice. That sounds hard. It's way more convenient to achieve virtue by expressing hatred of those who think the health service could be improved by introducing competition. You see, it's done by people. They kind of want to display their good character and they do it very often by expressing hatred or downplaying other things. What's the first words that come out of the Pharisee's mouth? Thank you, God, that I'm not like them. It's prayerful virtue signaling. Thank you that I'm not like all these other hateful, unrighteous, unclean people. And here's the problem with that like the problem that it still is today. It all stems from a heart that wants to compare himself to others rather than what God's expectations are of him. Prayers like that, feelings like that, Things that in our heart make us stand apart from other people, even though sometimes it happens without us noticing it, even though it's just a heart posture that says, I don't want to get too close, just you know, the way they are, the kind of things they do, but if I get too close, you know, all it mean? stems from a heart that holds myself up against other people's expectations and my own expectations rather than holding it up against God's. And then we have the tax collector. And the reality is that he probably shouldn't even be there. Most tax collectors stayed away from the temple in that time because they knew they weren't well liked. They knew they were hated. They knew people didn't like them, so they felt people didn't want them there, so they likely didn't go to the temple. And he's standing alone. But he's not standing alone because he thinks himself too high and above everybody else. He's standing alone because he thinks himself too low. Because he thinks himself undeserving of the God that he meets there. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. He's standing apart because he's ashamed. He's standing apart because he knows what he's done. He's standing apart because he knows who he is. And there is the humility of the kingdom right there. The type of prayer that shapes a relationship with Jesus who rushes to meet somebody just like this. The type that realizes that God raises up those who humble themselves, right? There's kind of a glorious thing. This is probably the last thing that I'm ever gonna say about Donald Trump, right? I realize I'm hard on Donald Trump. But there's kind of a glorious thing. You know, the passage says that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And there's kind of a glorious thing in this life when somebody who spends an inordinate amount of time exalting themselves eventually gets humbled, isn't there? There's something in you that goes, ah, balance has returned to the world. But equally, right, there's something utterly wonderful about when somebody who lives a really humble life I'm talking about the sorts of people that serve and give and spend their lives for other people in ways that other people never, ever see. They don't broadcast themselves. They don't tweet about it. They don't virtue signal about it. They don't pray like I've just prayed. They just get on with loving people and serving people well and going after the things of the kingdom and goodness and all of that sort of stuff. And nobody ever notices until that moment at some point in their life. Often it happens at things like retirements or... Significant birthdays or whatever. And all of a sudden we get the chance to lift somebody up. And there's something wonderful about that, isn't there? There's something wonderful about those moments. The Lord says everyone who lifts themselves up, exalts themselves, will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Here's the thing though, that's not the culture of the world in which we live, is it? We live in a time characterized by selfies and every method of broadcasting ourselves to the world that is, that is possible to have. It's never been easier. And we as a world seem to want to take every single opportunity we have to tell other people how good and righteous and morally correct and all of that that we are. So when we come to our relationship with God, we come to him like that too, don't we? Broadcasting ourselves, our plans, our stuff, what we want to do. It's almost like we pray prayers out of a heart of God. Don't disappoint me on this one, right? And yet the call is to humility in a world of self. a sort of humility that is more marked by what we do than what we say, that doesn't care who sees or doesn't, that doesn't care who hears it. You know, the thing is that whichever attitude reflects our relationship with God in this life, the opposite will characterize our status in the next Sort of attitude that characterizes our relationship with God in this life will characterize our status. The opposite of that will characterize our status in the next. So the question is today what does that look like? How does that look for you? See, we read earlier on from that passage from Micah where the Lord almost talks to his people through the prophet about his righteous acts, okay? He's trying to remind them, okay? Walk in step with me because this is the sort of God that I am, right? And right after he tells them about all of those things that he's done through history, then right at the end of that little block, he says this, and what does the Lord require of you? Bearing in mind what the Lord has just told them he's done for them rescued them from slavery and oppression, brought them out of desperate circumstances, given them land and a place and all of that stuff. And then what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. The kingdom looks like humility in a world of self. Does that look like your life right now? Does that look like it? Because the sort of attitude that we have towards God, the opposite of which will characterize our relationship and our status with him in the next. This parable points to humility in a culture of self. But secondly, it points to justification in a world of judgment. This is what it says in those last few verses, okay? But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. then Jesus says, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So we started today talking about the idea of a court of law, right? And the whole point of that process in the legal courts is for the outcome eventually to be found in your favor, isn't it? Like you go into that process believing, hoping, trusting that the process will do what it's meant to do and at the end, the outcome will be in your favor, right? And that's exactly what this section is all about. See, the Pharisee had been praying and it was all about him, but in many ways, he's just doing what other people did, right? But it was more than just what he said, okay? He did more than that in terms of his actions, okay? He talks about fasting too. He says, I fast twice a week, right? And the thing is that in those times, Pharisees, okay, and bear in mind, Pharisees, they were the like pious ones. We're not even talking about just everyday Jewish people. We're talking about like the pious ones, right? Like the really religious ones, okay? In those days, they were required or they, if they chose, but they were kind of required to, they, they were, they chose to fast two days before and after each of the three main feasts that happened in the year. So easy maths is that's 12 days fasting a year. What does this guy say? I fast twice a week, right? Twice a week, every week of the year, right? He is telling other people, broadcasting aloud, look at me, guys, I fast nearly 10 times as much as even the most religious people do. And then again, with his giving, okay? Tithing at the time, Pharisees were required to tithe grain, oil, and wine, or sorry, grain, yeah, grain, oil, and wine, okay? But he tithes everything he owns, Surely God and everyone else that can hear me right now couldn't fail to be impressed with how holy I am, right? That's essentially what is happening here. Surely it would be enough. Surely God would find in my favor. And yet it won't be. It won't be. Because Jesus changes the nature of our relationship with God forever. Forever. Jesus changes the relationship of our that changes the nature of our relationship with God forever, so much so that it's not any more about just how good you are at abiding by the rules and the laws and all of that stuff. Jesus changes it entirely. Just look at the tax collector for a moment. We're told that he beats his breast, right? This is this might seem like a strange thing, but actually this is deeply significant, okay? It's significant because this is not something that traditionally men did in that time. It was something that women did. Women being seen as more emotional than men. Women beat their breasts. Men didn't do that, okay? And if a man did, it was only in the case of a really significant, deeply moving, deep anguish, deepest feeling, okay? So for example, the only other time that you'll find it in the Bible is in Luke 23, and it's the people's reactions that Jesus death when they realize what happened and who he really was people saw that jesus had died and they look up and go that truly was a righteous man they beat the rest and they walk away this is what the tax collector does when he's in the presence of god in the temple and then we have the prayer right and it's a genuine and from the from uh, as much from the heart as it possibly gets when i used to work for alpha um, many people love the Alpha course, but lots of other people don't love the Alpha course. Okay, why? I have no idea. But some people don't love it, okay? And one of the things that would often get said, particularly if I went to like quite conservative churches and tried to talk to them about Alpha, they would very often say this one line, which was told again and again and again. I heard it like 50 times while I worked for Alpha, and it was this, Alpha doesn't teach repentance, right? They would say that again and again. Alpha. You see, my problem with Alpha is it doesn't teach repentance, And in many ways, I would always say to people, you can't, right? You can't teach repentance. There's no possible way to do that, okay? I say that as much as myself, but also with the case study that is the four-year-old terrorist that lives in my house, okay? You can't teach repentance, okay? You can't do it. You can only talk about it. You can only demonstrate it yourself to her. But you can't teach someone how to have a heartfelt sense of, I messed up. I'm sorry, I did wrong. You can't teach that sort of thing. And yet when that four-year-old terrorist realizes that she's done wrong, that she's hurt us or at this moment in time has frequently hurt her baby brother, the brokenness is real. The brokenness is honest. You will very often find the next morning as she kind of Trots into the room at six o'clock in the morning. She'll get into bed. She usually comes around to my side. She'll get into bed, jump up on top of me, and say, "Dad, I'm sorry that I hurt you yesterday. I'm sorry that I hit Levi, Or I'm sorry that I did you know whatever else that she does. It's real. The brokenness is real." And it's the same as the dozens, if not hundreds of times. I've been particularly on Alpha Weekends and watched as the Holy Spirit came into people's lives. Watch as he started to flood their lives with the life of heaven. Something good came into them. And as that good thing comes in, you begin to realize just how low and how bad and how rotten various parts of your life are. And I've watched as those dozens, if not hundreds, of people wept particularly. That's the reaction I would say I've experienced more than any other on Alpha Weekends, just brokenness, just tears, just the truest sense, not just of who God is in his goodness and in his faithfulness and in his love and in his mercy, but also the truest sense of who we really are. It looks like this. It looks exactly like this. And this is how Jesus changed things forever because something in the small faith of a man who probably shouldn't be here gets through to the great heart of God. Something in the small faith of a man who's probably somewhere where nobody wants him to be, probably thinks he's dirty. I mean, the the Pharisee names him by name, right? Thank you that I'm not like this guy. Something in his small faith interacts with the great heart okay, but he doesn't even offer, I mean, there's technicalities to this too, right? I know we get bored with technicalities, okay, but he doesn't even offer a sacrifice, right? That's kind of a big deal in the time too. Uh, you're meant to, okay, when you bring, you kind of confess your sins and all that stuff. You're meant to offer a sacrifice, an atonement for your sins. That was kind of part of the deal in the temple, right? He doesn't do it. And in far cycle law, that means you don't bring the sacrifice, you don't get the atonement, right? That's kind of part of the contract that goes on. And yet, Jesus says "It's still enough. He's still justified. Jesus still finds that the outcome is on his side. One commentator called Herzog writes this, if the tax collector is justified by a mercy as unpredictable and outrageous as this, then who could not be included? See, this wasn't an easy thing to hear. I realize I'm talking about grace. I'm talking about mercy today. I'm talking about the sense of humility and brokenness that needs to be in our lives if we're going to manifest the life of the kingdom in us and see it happen in the world at large. I realize that that is not often an easy thing to say, right? It wouldn't have been easy for them. What do I mean? I mean that just because the tax collector is justified wouldn't have made it easy to identify with him, right? In the end of the day, he was still a tax collector. So even though God goes, this guy did the right thing, he'll be justified. You haven't got the crowd going, yes, make us all like the tax collector. They're looking on going like that guy. I can't be like that guy. He's a tax collector. Just because the Pharisee gets rebuffed doesn't mean that he doesn't have admirable qualities about him either. still a good person. Most of the people there would probably have seen him afterwards still trot off to prayer, still trot off to fulfill the law, still trot off to do good things day in and day out. Just because God says, don't be like this, doesn't mean that there weren't good things about him. This is one of those parables, right? where Jesus does this thing where normally in, in some of the parables, Jesus will give examples, right? So in the case of the seeds, you know, he gives the different seeds. And basically it's like, don't be like those ones, but be like this one. The one that springs up, bears good fruit, you know, whatever he says, fivefold, 30 fold, you know, whatever, a hundred fold. Uh, you want to be like that, right? But this is one of these parables where Jesus doesn't do that. You see, he gives you a tax collector and people were listening going, I don't want to be like him. And he gives you a Pharisee and you go, well, Jesus says, don't be like him. So who am I to be like? What does this look like? This is a mercy wilder than anyone could imagine. This was a grace that broke down barriers that anyone could ever have imagined. So wild that we struggle with it too sometimes that he or she could be accepted, could be justified. Like him, that guy, that it doesn't matter what's going on on the outside or how things appear. It's the humility in the world of the heart that he's looking for. Because if we live with humility in a world of self, we might know justification in a world of judgment. And we do live in a world of judgment, don't we? We're judged for and by others for all sorts of things. It's never been easier to judge people for, you know, the things you've done in your life because you've almost certainly posted them all on social media. So like years later, you know, somebody will dredge something on and be like, uh-oh, you went to a fancy dress party dress like that, right? You know, they pull them up later on you're judged for the clothes that you wear the brands how eco-friendly they are you know you got primark on well you're just you're just accepting child slavery you know that sorts of things that people do these days or our attitude to global warming or who we voted for or whether we're pro life or we're pro choice or the past or our theological viewpoint on certain things, or how our views line up with the kind of globalized, left-liberal vision of the world that is making its way into a bright and beautiful future. We're judged for it all, aren't we? But often, if I'm honest, the greatest sense of judgment comes from in here, doesn't it? The greatest sense of judgment in our lives comes from inside, doesn't it? It's the voice that when we go home and we're on our own at nighttime. We begin to kind of cycle through our days, conversations that we've had, stuff that we've done, stuff we've said. And then it begins to kind of work its way back through your past, stuff you've done, stuff you've said, positions you held, things that have happened to you, things that you've done. And the greatest sense of judgment comes from in here, doesn't it? And the problem is that in that context, we respond by becoming self Righteous, don't we? Like constantly trying to justify ourselves or our opinions on the defensive all the time. Cutting off all the opinions and people who cut across what we believe. We just unfollow, right? Block, don't want to know. You don't believe what I believe. You're blocked. Trying to prove ourselves and to everyone else just how right we are. And all of a sudden, we're like the Pharisee, aren't we? see, self-righteousness distorts our vision of God. If we live a self-righteous life, we distort our vision for God, whether we mean to or we don't. You see, first, it, it, it distorts our vision of God himself, right? Because we think that we're doing pretty good, don't we? Like, I'm doing all right on my own. I'm a decent person. I do this, that, and the other. I serve in the church. You know, you kind of get that, right? Like, if, very often if I talk to neighbors and, and they kind of, they're not Christians, they'll say, oh, you know, you do an awful lot around the church. That's awful good. You know, they say things like that, right? You're like, no, like the life of heaven lives in me. You know, and then you're like, oh, you're awful good. I saw you taking out Gary's bin there the other day. That was awful good of you. You know, those sorts of things, right? But you live that way. Look at all the good stuff I've done. You watch the news, you see somebody on the news and you're like, thank goodness I'm not like that guy. And that's exactly what the Pharisee did. You see, we don't see God anymore uh, for who he really is. The name of every name. The one who's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. The one who we said last week is not just actually our father, but our father, dad. So it distorts our view of God. Second, it distorts our vision of ourselves, doesn't it? You see, we're not even nearly as good as we think we are. Even in our best days, even when we've done something that's good or generous or loving or accepting or whatever, right? We're not nearly as good as we think we are. But also we're not, we're not beyond being saved. There's nothing we can do to be beyond being saved. Saved by the gift of right relationship. That's what righteousness really means, Right? Righteousness to them in that day meant, you know, the saving acts or the good things that you did in response to the saving acts of God, right? That's what righteousness meant. Righteousness to us because of Jesus is right relationship with him. And finally, it distorts our vision of others. So we end up saying and believing in our hearts that thank you, God, that I'm not like them. And yet beyond the surface is someone who might desperately know that they aren't all the outside suggests they are. Someone desperate to know the love of Jesus in their life. If only we could be humble. I feel all the time, you know, in the world that... We live in where church leaders all of a sudden end up broadcasted for their opinions on this, that, or the other thing, whether it's in this country or in the other countries of the world. That I just wish more than anything else one of the things that characterized how we were perceived and how we, we are on screen and how we are as people see you in the workplace and in your family and in your friendship groups was firstly humble. Someone who's willing to lead a life of self-sacrificial love for other people, willing to put other people first, willing to do it even if nobody notices and no one ever knows, willing to be humbled that one day they might be exalted. If only we could be humble and know in our hearts that Jesus still finds in our favor. That's the justification that happens here, right? Because at the end of this parable that feels like a court case and the watching crowd were probably thinking at the end, oh, of course it's going to find in the Pharisees' favor. He's the good guy, right? That actually what they find is that God finds in the favor of the one who humbles himself, the one who beats his breast, the one who stands apart because he thinks he's not worthy of God's love. But yet he is the one who finds it. You know that last line, this one went home justified is perhaps one of the most hopeful verses in the whole Bible. Because it means that even the most maligned, the most hated person in all of the culture of the time, someone who shouldn't be there, who wouldn't even have been wanted there, can simply and honestly humble themselves and in so doing, find that God would find in their favor. Because that means that there is hope and life available to every single one of us in here today and every single one out there today.